Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In today's episode, we examine the enigma of violence, particularly as it manifested in Jamaica from roughly the period of the sound system then until the early 70s in the rise of reggae. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. interested in the writings of Karl Marx and is willing to share that interest widely will eventually come across the accusation that Marx supports violence. That what he recommends is the violent overthrow of current social conditions. Ultimately, the murder of the bourgeoisie in order to instantiate a new way of living, socialism. And Eventually, this person will probably also say, and as we've seen over and over again, socialism doesn't work, and and so on. What they usually turn to, then, is a specific quote from Marx, which comes at the end of a very short article, if you want to even call it an article, a sort of blurb, uh, in in the the Neue Rheinische Zeitung, right, the, the, the new Rhe- newspaper of the, of the Rhineland, uh, called The Victory of the Counter-Revolution in Vienna. And this is from 1848, November of 1848, when Marx is uh, 30 or 31 years old, right? So still quite young in his, in his long career. And this is the quotation that they usually will refer to, right? There's another one from uh, the Communist Manifesto about, you know, uh, the workers unite and the only thing uh, you have to loses your chains and this idea that 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 implies violent overthrow. But this is the real kicker for most people, right? Uh, There's only one way, he writes, this is the very end of this article, there's only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and concentrated, and that way is revolutionary terror. And of course, we recoil at the word terror. And should, right? Now, first of all, this uh, that quote gets thrown about uh, all over the place uh, in, in in an attempt to discredit Marx, but is always taken out of context. Let's very briefly put it in context. What he's referring to are, of course, the various revolutions of 1848 throughout Europe. But he's concerned, obviously, with Vienna. And really, we're only concerned with two moments in this rather protracted and difficult history, right? First is the March Revolution. And the March Revolution in Vienna uh, was a response to the ultra-conservative stranglehold that the Chancellor Metternich, Prince Metternich, had over, um, over Europe. And they demanded his uh, his his removal from office and got it. it he had sta- clamped down on the freedom of the press, on the working class in general. Uh, was was very restrictive of various fraternities and university groups. And so, with the March Revolution, the um, the, the the emperor conceded 
some of these some of these issues, right? And so freedom of the press wasn't wasn't perfect still, right? But improved. The 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 relative freedom given to the press improved. The fraternities were allowed to meet and so on. In October of that year of 1848, uh, the Austrian army is moving out to deal with the rebellions in Hungary, right? Which was again part of this larger um, concern with the revolution in 1848. And several students and some soldiers and members of the working class sided with the Hungarians. They saw the Hungarian point of view, and so they prevented the army from moving out, basically. This was met with brutal response. Uh, the killing of many of the people involved in this relatively tepid uh, form of revolution, right? And it also led to the withdrawal of many of the advances made from the March Revolution. So Marx, in this, again, very short article, which is not a treatise on violence, certainly not a treatise on revolutionary terror, right? It just ends with this, this line that gets bandied about. What he's doing is he's asking, well, who, who benefited from all this, right? It was really the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie made gains in the March Revolution. And then when they were losing uh, over the course of 1848 their position of prominence, when their wealth was under threat, they sided with the authoritarian rule of the emperor and they helped bring down this, count, this revolution, right? however we might want to view that revolution. And so it was crushed because of the interests of the bourgeoisie. So what he's suggesting here is not simply that revolutionary terror, which I will grant is a poor choice of words, is the desired outcome. What he's suggesting is that the values of capitalism, the values of the bourgeoisie are so deeply entrenched that they're not going to be thrown off through relatively peaceful measures, at least not within the context as he sees it in Austria. He suggests at some point that, uh, that the U.S., which, you know, he's obviously talking about 19th century U.S., not the um, military industrial complex and, and so on that, that gets built up over the course of the two world wars. But he does suggest that the U.S. has the possibility of making a peaceful transition uh, towards socialism. But that in places where it's entrenched, where capitalism is deeply entrenched, the only likelihood, or at least to keep it, um, to, keep, to make it move swiftly, is revolutionary terror. And that's what he says, right? That the, the only way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified and concentrated, that way is revolutionary terror. Now, people read this and suggest that Marx, therefore, is callous and unconcerned with the suffering of humanity. But if you read Capital, if you read a lot of his works, you see a humanitarian uh, mind thinking through the history of, of human society and recognizing that the basis of human society is all the, the change from one formation of society, one economic structure to the next, comes through violent overthrow. Not necessarily violent political overthrow, but just the uprooting of the way things were. And that's, what, that's, that's the basis of the radicalism here. Radical means of the root. 
And what he's suggesting is that uh, various economic modes of being, like feudalism, which gives way to capitalism, does so through violent upheaval. Not necessarily through bloody deaths, but through an uprooting of a way of living. Now, I'm not trying to excuse the use of the term revolutionary terror. I'm trying to put it in context because what I'm concerned with here, really, is what Marx is suggesting is the reason that leads to violence. That what we see as the, what we might call the epiphenomena of violence, the things that we actually see as violent acts, the murders, the, the, the brutalities, that those are a setting forth of an underlying more constant violence, an economic violence, and a social violence that keeps things the way they are, that maintains the status quo, the threat of violence. You see this kind of argument over and over again, right? That's the argument for capital punishment, that you have to have, you have to give the state some kind of ultimate authority or ultimate purchase on violence to keep these aberrant uh, instances of violence contained, or at least to, to have the ultimate sanction against them. But what that fails to recognize is what I think Marx does recognize, that those acts of violence aren't aberrations, that actual violence that we confront in the world are a result of our social relations, the way that we live, the way that we relate to each other. So if we live in a society where some people gain because other people lose, if we live a zero-sum game, and that's essentially what capitalism is, right? That the law of competition here is that I can only truly win if someone else loses. And as we know, through the problems of homelessness and food insecurity and lack of education among the poor, that some people don't just lose a little, they lose everything. And if that's the basis of capitalism, of how capitalist societies work, then that is the underlying inherent violence of it. And that that is what gives rise to these outflowings of what uh, Slavoj Žižek calls subjective violence, right? That most of the violence that we're upset about, the, the robberies, the, the killings and so on, that, that we can see on the news, that those are acts of subjective violence. Somebody's doing them. But underneath that, the cause of that is an underlying objective violence. Just the way things are. The things that make things the way they are. It is as it is, right? And that seeming tautology, it is as it is, is protected by a kind of underlying, not a kind of, by an underlying violence. And in Marx's time, that was palpable, of course, right? Because he's watching these strikes uh, get, get beaten down through violence, through murder. Now we live in a, a more subtle period of violence, but it's still not all that subtle. And I don't think you have to go back, well, you don't have to go back at all. You can look at, at current events in the Congo and so on to see just how brutal uh, the global violent situation is. But for this episode, we're going to go back a few decades to the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Jamaica to, to have a uh, kind of case study here in how violence 
economic violence, global economic violence, right? Uh, through the foreign influence, the influence of foreign businesses on an island that had only gained its independence from, from being a colonial holding of the UK in 1962. How that economic situation led to an efflorescence of subjective, everyday street violence. Let's turn to that next. case that, in some ways at least, Jamaica was the victim of global capital. Jamaica was a colony of the, of the United Kingdom and a slave state. Slavery was ended in 1838, but universal suffrage didn't come about until 1944, meaning it wasn't until 1944 that the population of Jamaica, the large population of Jamaica, could vote. And they started 44 by electing a new House of Representatives. And, and by the way, the, the rise of universal suffrage only came about through various worker strikes and so on, dating back before um, 1938. But 1938 were the major dock strikes, which were strikes against the United Fruit Company and other um, agents of foreign capital. So foreign businesses uh, doing work in Jamaica and taking advantage of the of the population there. 1944, universal suffrage, right? So they elect a new House of Representatives and there are two dominant parties that emerge. The first is the Jamaican Labor Party, which I'll refer to as the JLP from here on out. And that was under the leadership of the charismatic Alexander Bustamante, known as Busta by his people. And then there was the People's National Party, the PNP, under Norman Manley, who was actually a cousin to Bustamante, but the two of them have very different visions for what uh, for what Jamaica should be. 
Now, the sudden granting of the right to vote launched Jamaicans into a political arena with which they were entirely unfamiliar. Uh, Jamaica was still, in, some, in many ways, a quasi-feudalist country. So the citizens, unfamiliar with the franchise, with, with voting and participating in government, they tended to gravitate toward the political identities of the leaders of the parties more than the platforms the parties endorsed. They identified with either Bustamante or Manly. Capitalism itself was rather alien to most Jamaicans, right? The very notion of a proletariat was still very much in formation. There were manufacturing plants, mostly run by foreign companies, but they employed a significantly small portion of the population, roughly 30 workers per plant, and there were roughly 400 plants. That's a pretty small percentage overall. Most of the people who were employed in Jamaica were still working on sugar estates and with perhaps owning a small farm of their own, a subsistence farm, right? Making enough to, to get by. But of course, as we move through the 40s and 50s and 60s, the problem of unemployment skyrockets. So there are many unemployed people in, in Jamaica. Now, Bustamante... Uh, of the JLP. He was a money leader, lender and a trade union organizer. He came to prominence in those 38 riots that I mentioned, the 1938 riots. He formed the Bustamante Industrial Trade Union, BITU, right, B-I-T-U, and was affectionately, as I said, known as Busta by his many followers and admirers. But he demanded the utmost loyalty, and he rarely consulted with his colleagues about his decisions. He was charismatic, he exuded a confidence in his dealings with the plantation owners that won him uh, the confidence of the people. Norman Manley, on the other hand, was a Rhodes Scholar and a very successful lawyer, and he became the leader of the PNP when it was first formed in 1938, also as a result of those, those riots. Those, that's a pivotal moment in Jamaican history. His negotiating style was based in rational disinterest. And that's how he, he dealt with the plantation owners was he was trying to take a kind of a seemingly objective point of view and showing that by helping the workers, you're helping yourself in, in the long run. He was a very persuasive speaker and he, was, he didn't have the same authoritarian approach that Busta did. As the parties developed, the JLP under Bustamante uh, emerged as the pro-capitalist party, whereas Manley was leaning towards socialism in various ways. And yet they were both very interested, obviously, in the um, economic health of Jamaica, and they both realized that Jamaica was very dependent on foreign capital. Full independence arrives in 1962, August, uh, August 6th of 1962. But Jamaica remained in the Commonwealth of Nations, and thus the Queen remained as the putative head of state. It adopted the parliamentary system based on the UK system, right? Bustamante was the first prime minister, and Norman Manley helped fashion the new Jamaican motto, which was, out of many, one people. But Manley recognized, at least in an, a speech of the time, that this was an ideal to strive after, not something that had already been achieved. And in fact, the rich and the poor were drawing ever further apart. The first decade of its independence witnessed impressive economic growth, roughly 6% per year growth of the national, gross national product. But where that growth went is, is important to keep in mind. It went to the very few, not to the great, great um, 
number of uh, citizens. Now, a lot of that growth was grounded in foreign investment in bauxite. Bauxite is a, a rock with a high aluminum content, right? And so it's used to make automobile parts and airplanes and so on. And there was also some investment that went into tourism, also by foreign companies, and manufacturing, also mostly by foreign companies. So Jamaica was in a very interesting position. It had money coming in, but it also had a lot of money going out. It was developing money through bauxite mining and so on. But that bauxite mining was taking up more and more of the land, so the small farmers were losing those farms, right? The sugar plantations remained, but the small farmers were losing their farms. And so in a sense, their success led to greater homelessness, greater poverty, greater disparity among the, the basically three classes of, of Jamaicans. There were the whites, there were the browns, and there were the blacks. It was really quite that simple. The blacks were, were the... Um, Obviously, the, the, the grandsons and so on of, of uh, and great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons of former slaves. And the whites were the colonists. And, of course, the, the brown people who were sort of the emerging middle class in Jamaica were the result of, uh, of sexual relations between uh, slave owners and slaves, ultimately. So Jamaica finds itself in a very strange position. On the one hand, it has to project an image of stability. If it doesn't, it'll lose that foreign investment. At the same time, that foreign investment is choking Jamaica out when it's still a very young new nation, independent nation. An independent nation that really, I mean, this is classic post-colonialism. They're still dependent on their former uh, colonizer in many ways and dependent on the U.S., right? So really, in, for all uh, intents and purposes, Jamaica remains, in essence, a colony, now no longer of just uh, Great Britain, but also of the U.S., right? Its economy is dependent on foreign investment, but that means that a lot of the money that's being produced is going back out to those foreign countries, and while some people are benefiting from this in Jamaica, other people are being dispossessed and there's an increasing divide between the well-off and the totally impoverished. As the decades increase, Jamaica was never uh, you know, unfamiliar with violence, but as the decades go on, that violence becomes increasingly political in nature. And it's not revolutionary violence in the, in the notion that we started with with Marx. This is violence meant to influence elections. This is violence that's meant to, in essence, keep this very flawed system running. Because it's a system that doesn't work for Jamaica. It works for other countries using Jamaica. So street gangs start to identify with the two parties. Right. And the parties always disavow that relationship. They say, well, you know, the leaders are not directly involved. It's the lower level leaders that are involved. And yet the parties are benefiting in various ways from these street gangs. Obika Gray, in a very interesting book called Demeaned But Empowered, The Social Power of Urban Poor in Jamaica, um, says that Jamaican society was essentially predatory. He writes, quote, it feeds hungrily on, steals from, and assimilates all possible cultural and ideological tendencies within the society, the better to maintain a ubiquitous hegemony, end quote. So for Gray, the difference between the two parties isn't as great as it might seem. They're both predatory. They're both taking advantage of the dispossessed and the poor. The poor have been disenfranchised and seduced into 
basically endorsing their own dispossession. And so Gray asks an important question. What's in it for them? Why why buy into it? You can understand in the beginning buying into it because there's hope for a, a new independent future. But why do they keep with it? Why do they get more involved in, in these party politics where they're following these charismatic leaders, often to their own detriment? There are two real answers here, and, and Gray's aware of both. The one that Gray's pushing is this notion of uh, what he calls badness honor, that there's a kind of social power that emerges as badness honor, that what you're doing is you're, you're, um, you're showing how tough you are in relation to the parties. Uh, and so therefore, um, this plays into various images that we'll talk about in the next segment. For instance, the rude boy image uh, that's so typical of uh, rock steady and early reggae music. The other aspect, of course, that plays into all this is clientelism. Right, the idea that the parties become kind of patrons to these clients, to the to the people in the gangs, to the people, uh, the selected few among the poor. Right, so the clients get a sense of belonging and identity through connection, however loose, with the party. They may get, and some did get, actual economic benefits, but the strength of that relationship between the party and the client is based more on the hope and the expectation of benefit. Uh, the sense of belonging that emerges from that hope in concert with others who are entertaining the same hope, right? By identifying with that party. And so what seems to happen here, and, and you can understand the susceptibility to this kind of thinking, right? You have centuries of slavery and marginalization and then continuing economic exclusion and increasing lack of connection to agriculture and traditional forms of living. In fact, one of the things that happens, of course, is, is as those farms disappear, agriculture becomes less important within Jamaican e economy, at least for what they're producing, so that means that they're buying food from other countries. They're importing it, which means the prices go up. So the very essence of life, food, becomes increasingly unaffordable for people. So you're dealing with a whole swath of people who can't afford housing, who can't afford food, who can't find work, especially in places, urban areas like Kingston. And even when... Jamaica tries to disassociate uh, itself from foreign capital, it keeps kind of failing. This happens a lot in the 70s, right? Uh, in 1974, um, uh, the bauxite levy is passed, which is designed to increase revenues from the excavation of the mineral and reduce dependency on foreign capital. But instead, those bauxite co uh, companies, they simply start mining elsewhere, outside of Jamaica. And so that economic spiral death spiral, in many ways, continues. And as the 70s progresses, the, that patron-client relationship becomes ever more involved in violence and uh, in, in increasing the disparity among, among the classes. Because one of the things that the parties start doing is when, when a given party is in power, they'll open uh, low-income housing and offer it only to people that follow their party. And this creates garrisons, in essence, right? A garrison is a place where all the people uh, are together that, that follow the same party, and therefore it becomes a stronghold of the party. And when the next party comes into power, when the other party comes into power, right, and they seem to alternate uh, roughly every eight years, then they create 
low-income housing and give it to the followers of their party. And these low-income housings are largely in West Kingston, so people are in close proximity to each other who actually have a great deal in common, their, their impoverishment, their hunger, and so on. But because of their identification with the party, they deal with each other through violence. And so the elections become increasingly violent over the course of the 70s, kind of culminating in the very violent and deadly election of 1980. We'll talk a little more about the politics of the 70s in the next episode. Right now, I want to back up again, back to the, the 50s this time, and what's going on with sound system culture and music, and how that maps on to some of the violence we've just discussed. Jamaica had no real music industry to speak of. You could record in Jamaica, that is, you could cut an acetate disc, but it would have been a single track recording, meaning no multiple microphones, no studio separation, no overdubs. Everyone on the record would have had to have been in the same room at the same time performing, and the mix was, well, usually pretty technically terrible. This situation persisted uh, for quite a while. Indeed, many early reggae recordings of the late 60s and early 70s still had these sonic limitations. You can't hear the drums, the vocals obscure the backing instruments, and so on. For some listeners, the lo-fi aspects simply add to the charm. There were no mastering facilities either, so any record that you wanted copied for mass distribution, well, really just for distribution, no matter how limited, had to be sent to the U.S. for processing. Of course, 
None of this is to claim that Jamaica didn't have a deep and compelling musical culture. What's more important for our purposes in this episode is that this musical culture was focused on the poor areas like Kingston, noted for its impoverished, food-insecure, squatting citizenry, as well as its street gangs. The expressive culture that emerged in the 40s and 50s centered on the so-called sound system men. These were locals, that is, they were of the people, playing music for the people in this outside, in these outsized systems that they cobbled together with powerful amplifiers, large speakers, and records that they imported from the U.S., largely R&B and early rock and roll, Fats Domino, for example, and uh, Louis Jordan, those were, were favorites. The first sound system to gain prominence in the early 50s was Tom the Great Sebastian, run by Tom Wong, a half-Chinese Jamaican, half-Afro-Jamaican hardware store owner. Radio in Jamaica was highly conservative, so the sound system men offered the alternative of the excitement of the new. This was a DJ art. The point for the sound system men was to discover unknown records and build crowd excitement at dance halls and yards behind dance halls for parties. DJs would go to intriguing lengths to protect their records. The most common technique, of course, was to soak the label and then remove it with a razor blade so that the curious couldn't see what was being played. Indeed, one quick way to defeat a rival DJ was to figure out what, he, what his most successful records were and then play them yourself, thus diminishing the special nature of those discs. Sound system men carved out territory in Kingston, and then had to defend that territory. They also carved up the listening public. Listeners and dancers would implicitly and explicitly declare loyalty to a particular sound system, claiming they, quote, run with that sound system. And then they would, of course, frequent the parties and make their voices heard. Listeners would proclaim that a DJ ought to lick back or wheel and come again a record they particularly liked so that they could hear it again and again in a single party. They would also gladly express their dissatisfaction with a record that didn't make the grade. Sound system men became invested in these hidden gems and took on a kind of proprietorship over their records, their territory, their people. By the mid-50s, things turned increasingly competitive and increasingly violent. Tom was basically intimidated into playing suburbs by the rising violence by the mid-50s. Three sound system men emerged as the most successful, Clement Dodd, Duke Reed, and Prince Buster. Duke Reed was a former police officer. He knew the street toughs, and he had a penchant for violence and threats. It, seemed, it seems as though he was the primary agent in introducing regular violence to the sound system scene. His crew smashed the equipment of rival sound systems. Thus, they built up those, those crews, those sound systems, built up crews of their own, of informal security guards, who often retaliated against Reed and other rivals. The listeners themselves would also join in the fray. Even in less overtly violent situations, symbolic violence emerged. The goal of a sound system man was to, quote, flop his arrival by having a party nearby that would outdo his rival's party in volume, excitement, and crowd participation. There were also direct sonic confrontations called sound clashes, where two sound systems and their followers would compete for prominence within the same party. As Lloyd Bradley puts it in his wonderful book, This is Reggae Music, your goal was to, quote, mash up, batter, or straight up murder the, the other system with wicked music or devastating volume, end quote. 
and murder there is written as M-U-R-R-R-D-A-H. Soon guns and knives entered the scene. Duke Reed was particularly fond of attending parties strapped and firing his pistol into the air to garner attention, sometimes firing it right into the speakers of a rival sound system. He would even sometimes be seen playing with a live hand grenade. The violence was not only between the systems and their followers, however. The police got in on the action, often using even peaceful parties as yet another excuse to exert their brutal authority over the poor and the dispossessed. The sound system's culture, therefore, uh, because it was so thoroughly an expressive culture of the impoverished, the outcast, the black, was deemed by Jamaican government to be a threat to law and order. It was declared inherently disorderly and therefore to be circumscribed by state violence. So here we have a fairly clear illustration of Marx's notion of violence begetting violence. The state employed violence to contain the dispossessed majority. And that's the key here, right? Certainly in Kingston and really throughout large parts of Jamaica, the poor and the black, they outnumbered the middle and ruling classes by a lot. To avoid losing their position to the starving, the ruling classes maintain order through violence, or at least the threat of violence, but often actual violence. But order is not some ultimate objective value. Order is relative to what is deemed orderly for a given social formation, and not deemed orderly through some democratic process where everyone compromises on the nature of order and what should be allowed and what shouldn't but rather what is deemed orderly by the ruling classes in order to preserve their status. Violence maintains preeminence. Duke Reed, a former member of the police force, brought that equation of violence and stature into the sound system culture. In turn, the police and government, perhaps seeing a new if limited social formation arising, with its system of prestige and importance modeled on the system of Jamaica at large, the government visits violence upon what it regards as the aberrant and socially threatening presence of the sound system's expressive culture. But remember, violence of the overt sort wasn't the only way to get ahead. The sound system men gained a sense of prominence by being the only one to have certain records, which they kept secret. At first, these were all U.S. imports. The great sound system men were great collectors and either went to the U.S. to buy records unavailable in Jamaica themselves or they had associates do it. There was no point in buying records available in Jamaica. Anyone could do that. But over the course of the 50s, all three of the prominent sound system men, Dodd, Duke Reed, and Prince Buster, noticed that they could attain a similar impact with locally made records by Jamaicans. After all, if you remember, the problem with recording in Jamaica is that there or was that there were no mastering facilities and thus you couldn't make copies and the studios themselves were primitive at best. All recordings therefore were single artifacts unless they were sent to the US for mastering at great expense which they usually weren't. So if a local artist made a record and gave it to a sound system man it was by definition available to that sound system man only. Dodd Reed, uh, Dodd, Reed and Buster uh, found that not only did this make it easy to gain proprietorship over a record, but it also tapped in to a desperately needed sense of Jamaican, and more to the point local, pride, Kingston pride. So these three sound system men also became the first three prominent record producers in Jamaica. 
What emerged was a distinctly Jamaican take on U.S. R&B with a pronounced emphasis on the upbeat known as the skank, uh, or known as skankeen, taken from Mento music. Ska, the first of these new genres to emerge, is fast, joyous music featuring a horn ensemble. It's usually not terribly political in nature with respect to its lyrics, with several exceptions, of course, including the very important Derek Morgan song, Forward March, which was recorded after independence, the months after independence in 1962. And that song names both Alexander Bustamante and Norman Manley, the leaders of the JLP and PMP, respectively. So this was a uh, song about the possibility of progress. Now, ska eventually gives way, briefly, to a slower genre known as rock steady from roughly 1966 to 1968, and in 1968, um, reggae emerges. Rock steady is a genre that in historical hindsight seems to have paved the way to reggae. It slowed the tempo, and that allowed the rock steady musicians to experiment with rhythmic and accentual effects that wouldn't have registered in the faster-paced ska. It has more of an intriguing relationship among the guitars and basses, and the bass style itself becomes much more complex, much more interesting. Now, once again, the music was symbolically, at least, caught up in violence. Rocksteady emerged alongside a growing interest in what is termed rude boy culture. Rude boys were street toughs that wore skinny ties and pork pie hats and cultivated an outlaw image. The Rude Boy, in some ways, is the ultimate embodiment of what we saw earlier, what Obika Gray called badness honor. Owing to his poverty and blackness, the Rude Boy is ostracized from mainstream society. So he founds a sense of style and achievement in the slums and through an underground, unsanctioned form of economy. An economy grounded in overt acts of violence and thus reflecting the largely covert violence that grounds the official culture and government of Jamaica. His violence is both a reflection of the mainstream and an act of defiance toward it. The rude boy only functions because of the status quo that he rails against. Dismantle that structure, and you dismantle his livelihood. The ambivalence found in the rude boy culture is also characteristic of the rock steady songs that use that figure as their main subject. Many songs of this genre depict the rude boy, sometimes glorifying him, sometimes condemning him. Two famous songs find the rude boy in court. Judge Dredd by Prince Buster has the eponymous judge dressing the rude boys down for their hypocritical willingness to shoot other blacks in the name of their own oppression. The judge here brings the rude boys to tears. But Tougher Than Tough, a song by Derek Morgan, uh, presents another court scenario. And here, the rude boys are unbowed. The rude boys are, quote, rougher than rough, tougher than tough. And they don't fear. They are not yet free, the song ends telling us, but they refuse to capitulate to the injustice of the justice system. The rude boy in Rocksteady highlights the problem of violence. If the rude boy uses violence, he's on the one hand justified for it, for it is simply the overt violence that arises in reaction to the covert violence that entraps him. The covert violence of a society that's alienated and dispossessed him, left him to fight for scraps in order to survive. But on the other hand, that violence is not usually directed against authority. There are occasions where the rude boys depicted shooting a cop or or fighting with a cop. But a lot of times that violence is directed toward his fellow sufferers. His acts, therefore, are both a response to injustice and unjust themselves. 
The rude boy is emblematic of the problem, but he's hardly a solution to that problem, even if only as a symbol. And I think that's a big part of why Rocksteady's association with the rude boy starts to fall apart. He's not an adequate symbol for dealing with the violence of Jamaican culture. A solution requires a proper diagnosis of the problem, and the rude boy doesn't really represent that. To some extent, that's what we find in certain elements of reggae and its adoption of a Rastafarian point of view, a diagnosis of the problem, and perhaps some vision of how one might solve that problem. And that's what we'll turn to in the next episode. 